Thank you so much. Bless you. I'm going to come back next week and hear Dick Foth. He's one of my favorites. Since I was, oh, you can tell him I said this. Since I was little, I've been listening to Dick Foth. <laughs> Assembly of God camps. Um, I am so blessed to be here again. Thank you very much. It's always nice to have a repeat invitation. It makes you feel like you didn't offend everyone the first time. So I have this chance to do it if I didn't the last time. Um, I uh, want to just catch you up on my story real quick so that you understand some of the context as we move into the word today. I, my husband was diagnosed with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease about four years ago. It was three years ago, February. And so we've been fighting that <clears throat> battle. ALS is a terminal diagnosis, two to five year prognosis, in which time the, the patient is slowly paralyzed until only their eyes and brain function. And so even since the last time I was here in June, we've really taken a sharp, sharp decline. And it's been a tough couple of weeks. And so the first service, I was just apologizing through the whole service for crying all the time. And I'm just going to apologize once up front, like a sweeping disclaimer. <laughs> and you can just uh, forgive me in advance for that. I used to actually teach a homiletics class. I teach a homiletics class. But there's one that I teach for women. And I used to tell them, you know, you don't want to cry too much. Because if you cry too much, the women will feel sorry for you. And the men will want to rescue you. But nobody's going to want to learn from you. <laughs> And the Holy Spirit was like, ha, watch this. <laughs> watch how this works in your own life. So um, when my husband was diagnosed, we entered this battle, this, this difficult battle. And I wrote a book uh, in, in the years that followed. I wrote a book about the battle. And because of that book, I started to get tons of emails from people who were in their own fight, which really is such a gift to me. I'm a story person, and I not just my story. I love hearing stories. And so uh, I, one day I got two emails, and one was from a woman whose husband had left her for another woman, and one was for a woman whose husband had left her for another man. And both of these women were, were fighting on similar battlefields, but I was struck by the difference in the way they were doing it. One woman felt beaten, betrayed, Ugly, worthless, purposeless, done, bitter, mad at God. Um, understandably, no judgment, but that, that's where she was at. And the other one was saying, I am experiencing the beauty of God in ways I have never imagined I could experience it. I am closer to the truth of his word than I have ever been before. I feel more filled with purpose to reach out to my world than I have ever felt before. And also, I'm in a lot of pain. But I am on mission, on purpose, in new ways. So these distinct things, and I realize that in the literally hundreds and hundreds of stories I've heard, everyone falls on one side of the scale, either getting better through their hard time or getting more frustrated, more isolated, more alone, feeling more rejected, feeling more abandoned. And I started to really look at what is it that makes the difference? What is the, the primary way that someone stands strong in battle and someone kind of falls apart in battle? Because we're all going to, you know, run into battle. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, and it would appear he was not messing around. I mean, you could tell me stories or you could say, see, Jesus, this is what he was talking about. The world is tough. And so, how, you know, I think we could all point to someone that we look at and we would use the I word for them. 
They are such an inspiration, which is a word I don't love <laughs> as much anymore. If you're called an inspiration, it usually means you're going through something very difficult, just so you know. But it, but it is remarkable when you see people who face battle in a really strong way. And so when I was looking at it, what I came down to that I think is the primary difference, there are a few things, but the primary difference between the way we handle the hard times we face, whether we come out better or we come out more bitter, is this. Those who survive and thrive in the middle of battle are those who have an understanding and a trust in the character of God. They know him and they trust him, and that is not as easy as it sounds. I mean, we sing about it all the time. I stood in the front row today, and I sang, your word unfailing, your promise unshaken, and I had to look at my heart and say, do you believe that today? Do you really believe it? Because we make a lot of liars in worship. I sing it. It's, it's pretty music. It's inspiring. I feel it when I'm singing it. But when I start to think of the words, you give and take away, blessed be the name of the Lord, what a dumb song. I mean, honestly. You know, do you guys sing that song, Oceans? You call me out of it. I don't want to go out where my feet fail. I don't want to sing that song anymore because I want to be authentic in my heart. And so we need to know the character of God. Now, back in the 90s, some of you aren't even old enough to remember the 90s. I'm sorry for you. They were, it was a beautiful, beautiful decade. We knew how to dress back then, you guys. Um, back in the 90s, we started talking about character in an interesting way. And it was, uh, it was because of Bill Clinton. And this is not a talk about politics. But as Bill Clinton was discovered to have not lived a life of great integrity... Our country was also going up and to the right. Financially, we were doing well. Jobs were doing well. We were in a relatively peaceful time. And so some people wanted to impeach him, and some people were saying this line, character doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. As long as you have the skill, we don't need to know what you're doing with your wedding vows. As long as you can do what you say you can do, we don't need to know that you are not a good parent or you're not true to your word or whatever. And it got to, it kind of caught on. It became this kind of cool, spinny line that we use to explain away the moral failures of our political leaders. But I'm telling you, it falls apart. It doesn't work. It doesn't work in our most basic relationships. I mean, if, if you say, Bo, I really need a good tile guy. I'm going to retile my counters. And I come to you and I say, you know what? I've got just the guy. He does tile work like nobody else. I mean, he will do a mosaic of a galloping horse on your counter and it will be beautiful. I honestly know that guy. I do. <clears throat> Not that everybody wants a galloping horse on their counter, but he could do it. So if I told you I know a guy and he does the best tile work ever, sometimes he runs off with the money and doesn't finish the job. But if he does finish the job, and if you do get your money's worth, you're going to love your counters. You're going to hire him? No. It doesn't matter how much ability he has if he doesn't have the integrity to do the job. That's what character is, ability and integrity. Because it also wouldn't matter to you if I said, here, this is a great tile guy. He doesn't know much about tiles, but he's got a heart of gold. You don't want him either. You want someone who can do what they say they will do and will do what they say they will do. That's character. And the problem is we don't know the character of God often. In Christendom, we've, it's gotten popular in American Christianity 
to sort of bow our heads and close our eyes and raise our hand with this mental assent to a God who promises us eternity but never then get to know him. It's okay that we don't know him when we receive him. It's not okay if we never get to know him because what happens if we don't know who he really is and what he will really do for those in battle, when we hit a hard time, we're either going to be really disappointed because I thought he was going to keep me out of this or we're going to think we have to go it alone and figure it out ourselves. We need to know God. If you came to me this morning and you said, on my way in, my kid was out playing in the church parking lot and somebody drove by and rolled their window down and threw a rock at him and called him ugly. I would say, let's go get that guy. I've been looking for a fight for like three years. (laughs) I'm ready. I feel scrappy. But if you said to me, uh, when my kid was playing out in the parking lot, your husband drove by and rolled his window down and threw a rock and called him ugly. I would say, without hesitation, you got the wrong guy. I know that guy. I've known him through bounce checks. I've known him through sleepless nights with the kids. I've known him on days when he was told he had two years to live. I've known him on nights when he couldn't breathe. I know him. In fact, you don't know my husband. I wish you did. But he is the most compassionate man I know. I've never known anyone like him. And um, when we first moved to Bend, we went to Sherry's because that was the only thing Bend had 20 years ago. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been at Sherry's. Um, (laughs) It was before there was a brew pub on every single corner in Bend, Oregon. Um, And so we went to Sherry's and we were waiting in the lobby. That's why you had to wait for a seat at Sherry's 20 years ago. This is how old I've become. Um, And so we were waiting and there was an older couple coming out. And the man had had surgery a few days earlier. And he, bless his heart, they, they just wanted to get him out to get some air. And it was too soon for him to be out. And he passed out and fell and started bleeding in the lobby and everyone there just scattered except for my husband got down on his knees and put his head in his lap and prayed over him so you could produce dna from the rock itself and i will still tell you you got the wrong guy my husband does not throw rocks at children wrong guy And so when you come to me and tell me your story, which I would love for you to do and I would love to hear, if it ends with the line, why would God do this to me? I will tell you, you got the wrong guy. I know him. His word does not fail. His promise does not move. And so we need to know his character. That's why character matters. We tend to read things in the Bible like they're about us. I read about something that he's done, and I go, well, does that apply to me? me?" The Bible tells us about him. It's a look into who he is. We've got all these eyewitnesses in the Bible, eyewitnesses to his word and his acts and his character. They're dead, but they left notes. And so we read what they wrote, and we go, oh, Isaiah is telling me not who God is to me, who God is. He's telling me who God is and who God has been is who he will be. He does not change. That is the beauty of this giant, boring word called immutability. He does not change. So there are lots of things about the character of God. Because of this, I wrote 
my second book, Ruthless, which I have here today. We sold out of the first book, but I have Ruthless here. 30 days in the character of God. 30 things that I think I have been able to try to lash my cart to that horse and say, this is how I'm standing in battle. I know these things are true of him. But today we're going to look at three of them. Three things I think you need to know for sure if you're in a season of battle or if by chance some crazy thing might happen that you find yourself in a season of battle. Unlikely, but it could happen. (laughs) Um, The first thing is he is good. He is a good God always. He is always good. And he is not good because I'm good. He's good because he's good. And that is the biggest thing I've had to learn because I was raised by a good Mennonite family. And I, I love my Mennonite roots. My parents weren't practicing Mennonites when they raised me, but they were from generations. And uh, I bake a mean pie because of that, because we're good cooks. But also, there is a little bit of an idea of follow the rules. If I, then he. If I, you know, wear the right thing and say the right thing and show up at church at the right time and do the right thing, then I can maybe just stay out of his way. Maybe I just, I won't make him mad. And I've had to go through a kind of constant dismantling of my mindset that says he loves me. He loves me. The truth of that, he loves me not because I've earned it, not because I'm good enough, not any of those things, just because he's good, because he loves to love us. I am so impressed with him in that. I look at the thief on the cross and I say, that guy didn't do anything. He didn't do anything right. He deserved to be there. That guy did not make his mama proud. He probably didn't have friends around the cross weeping while he died. And Jesus looks at him and says, today, without one tithe check, without serving in church, without going to a small group, without any sort of life change at all, today, You'll be with me in paradise. I mean, don't live your life like the thief on the cross, for goodness sake. That's bad business. But let's just look at the love of God in that. He loves us. I think where we get mixed up is we think he loves us like we love each other. And he doesn't. He loves us more unconditionally than that. Thank him. Um, Jeremiah 32, 40. Sorry, uh, big screen guy. I'm going to switch to Jeremiah. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And I will not turn away from following them to do them good. I love this scripture. Because that word everlasting, this, these words were written in the year 600 B.C. Long, long time ago. I mean, they're done. They are well past their expiration date. Except for what word? Everlasting. Is that not a great word? That tells me that from 600 A.D. in Jeremiah's prison cell where he wrote that, to 100 AD in the early church, to the Industrial Revolution, to the Reformation, to the Roaring 90s when we dressed well, to today, to a generation from now when our grandkids and their kids are filling these chairs, when we're long gone, when we're in the cloud of witnesses and our kids are dealing with whatever they have to deal with on planet Earth as it remains everlasting. He will not stop following us to do us what? Good. He follows after us to do us good. Why does he have to follow us? Probably because we're doing this. Probably because we're trying to do our own good. Probably because we can lose sight of him. Probably because we're stuck in a fallen, foggy world where we don't always get it right. But he follows us. It is good news for us today. If you think that
that you have blown it so much that he can't redeem you? You have underestimated his ability to keep track of you. He is good, and it is hard to believe sometimes. I'm sorry, I'm truncating my notes as I go, figuring out where we're going. Um, I've had a lot of people say to me, it's okay to be mad at God. It's okay. They give me permission. You can be mad at God. And every time I think, are you kidding me right now? In what universe am I more mad about ALS than God? In what universe am I more righteously indignant over the condition of Steve Stern than the God who made him? You think God is happy about ALS? No way. I am not mad at him. I'm mad with him. We're a team. We do not like the fact that the enemy is attacking Steve's body, but we also are working together to see what could happen from this. And so, I, and, and I do feel like when people do that thing of it's okay to be mad at God, there's this thing of like it, it secretly pits us against him. Like we're the ones down here on earth where we really know what's going on and he doesn't quite get it. So, you know, okay, God, I, you know, I'm sort of mad at you for not paying attention to things the way you should. He knows. He's good. He's always good. And we can chant it in church till the cows come home, and we can say it over and over in our worship songs, and we can read it a million times and still not believe it when the chips are down. I'm going to stop yelling at you guys now. You'd rather I cry, huh? <laughs> if you had to choose. <laughs> Taylor, what was our thing yesterday? Would you rather, never mind. It's not going to even make any sense right now. I'm not going to get stuck in that cul-de-sac. Um, he, my niece Taylor is here, and we spent the day with her yesterday, and we had a lot of fun doing different would-you-rathers. Like, would you want to fly if you could only go two miles an hour? Would that be cool? Or that... <laughs> she said she would for the height, because then you could get up above. Okay. He, <laughs> he is a good God, <laughs> and he is a turning God. I love this about him. He is the God of the great reversal. He is the God who brings life from death and beauty from ashes and celebration out of sin. He is the God who turns things around. He, whatever condition you find yourself in, you don't have to get stuck there. My husband is not stuck in ALS. Whether God heals him on this side of heaven or heals him as he marches through the gates, my husband is not in any way stuck. God is going to turn this thing around. I don't even have a single doubt about that. I wonder about the when and where, but I don't wonder that he's going to. And so he is a turning God. The very first act recorded in our Bibles is God filling an empty world with a lot of things. He turns emptiness into fullness. He doesn't just put some water in our world. He puts 300 million trillion square miles of water in our universe. He doesn't just put one star or some stars. He puts one sextillion stars. That's one with 23 zeros after it. We don't even need that many stars. We only need like 30, I guess. One moon, 30 stars. Everybody would be good with that. We'd be like, oh, look at those stars. Aren't they cool? One sextillion. He doesn't just give us one butterfly. He gives us 20,000 species of butterflies. He fills the world with abundance. And then from the chaos, he brings order. He separates land from sky and sea. And he creates ecosystems and respiratory systems. And he does all of these things that create order in our universe. The world was formless, without order. And it was empty. And he, he fixed it. He turned it. That's who he is. He's a turning God. The problem with the turning God theology, though, is that in order for something to turn, 
say, from ashes into beauty, probably going to have to have a fire somewhere. Shoot. And I, I think so many people get so focused on what caused the fire when he is always, always focused on what could be built from what remains. Somebody argued with me on Facebook over this recently. He said, well, it's different what God will do with someone who's in prison for sharing the gospel versus someone who's in prison for tax evasion. And I thought, that's how we think, isn't it? God could restore this one because they didn't have anything to do with it, but he probably can't do much with this one because they made a stupid mistake. God is a restorer of broken things. He turns around wasted lives. The thief on the cross lives to give us that testimony. We know it. He turns things around. We'll always see evidence of a turning God when we see these two words bumped up next to each other in the Bible, and they are the words, but God. Every time you see those two words together, you are seeing evidence that God is the God of the great reversal. So some of my favorites, <clears throat> Genesis 50, 20, that one is on my wedding ring because it's our family scripture. It's plastered all over the walls of our house. It's on our t-shirts. It's literally everywhere. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Psalm 73, 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And my favorite, Acts 13, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Why don't we just stop it right there for a minute? Let's stop it on the ashes side of things. They took him down and they laid him in a tomb. Who is the they? Because it matters in this verse. These are real people that took the real, broken, mangled body of Jesus down off a cross and buried him in a tomb. You know who the they is? It's Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was a man that the Bible says, and I think I'd like this to be written on my tombstone. It says he, was, he lived in eager anticipation of the kingdom of God. Joseph did not consent to the killing of Jesus. He secretly believed that he was the one they had been looking for and waiting for. He was a good Jewish man. He was successful. He was a Pharisee. For all the times we say Jesus came for everyone but the Pharisees, not true. He believed in him. And so at the moment where his dream dies, he watches the man he thinks will bring redemption to Israel die the cruelest, most embarrassing, most humiliating sort of death. He watches it happen. All the disciples are gone. All the ones who promised to stick with him have disappeared. And he's willing to go to Pilate. And in the Greek, it says he begged him for the body of Jesus Christ. He begged him for the corpse of his broken dream. And he took that body down off the cross. And he buried it in his own tomb. Have you ever buried a dream on the battlefield? Have you ever said, that one's done? I thought I knew where this was going but I guess I was wrong. And I guess I'm just going to hide my disappointment away and pretend I didn't ever think that would happen and just try to move on with my life. 
Another one who was there is Nicodemus. Nicodemus went with Joseph of Arimathea. If you'll remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus once by night, and he asked him, what is the deal? How does a man be born again? And Jesus tells him, oh, this little silly scripture that we never talk about. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him will have eternal life. So Nicodemus takes a hundred pounds of spices to bury the body of Jesus. A hundred pounds of spices would have been his life savings. It was enough to bury 200 bodies. It was extravagant. It was excessive. It's so extravagant that just Bible geeks know that historians have been arguing forever if they misprinted it in the original text. Because nobody believes that Nicodemus would have loaded up a donkey with a hundred pounds of spices. They go and they bury the body of Jesus, and they think that he is gone and dead, but they're willing to give their dream a proper burial, and I'm telling you, I get it. They took him down and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him to life, but God who knows when the dream still has a heartbeat, but God, who knows that the battle was necessary for the resurrection to take place, but God, who understands what he can produce in you through the hardest moments in your life, he knows it. He is not living randomly with you. I think the enemy does. I think we give the enemy too much credit for knowing us and having this elaborate plan for our lives. I don't think he loves us enough. I think he just throws things as fast and furiously as he can into our path, and the world does, and we make mistakes, and all these things fall into our life. And this is why I love Romans 8, 28, where he says, oh, but guess what? I could take all these things, your mistakes, the attempts of the enemy to destroy you, the attempts of a world who doesn't want you to succeed, the random dumb luck situations that nobody can explain, I could take them and work them together for your good. Why? Because you're good? No, because he's good. And he is a turning God. In John, Jesus has a discussion with his disciples, and he says, I'm going to have to wear my glasses for this one. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now listen to this, because this is Jesus. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. And he says what I think could be our foolproof battle strategy for every single thing you ever face. This could be the only line you ever need. You ready? Jesus says it. Father, glorify your name. Just glorify your name. I don't know how the details look. I don't think I'm doing it all right. I don't think I'm enough to be the caregiver to a man who can't move. But Father, would you glorify your name? Be made real in us. Be made true in us. Look beautiful because of us. That's what I want to happen because when that happens, he has turned the situation around. That means God has come in and turned it. Because life is on the other side of death sometimes. Unless a seed falls and dies, that's a, I don't like that scripture either. 
How come? Unless a seed falls and dies. In fact, I had this little dream one time, or it was like a, in prayer. I could, just could see myself as like Lucy Ricardo. That's how I see myself in dreams, you know, with a little bandana. Like in the episode where she stomps the grapes. I know. And <laughs> I just saw myself coming to him with an apron filled with beautiful grapes. Just beautiful. And I said, look at my beautiful grapes. And he said, oh, those are beautiful grapes. But I am not a grape farmer. I am a winemaker. So a good bunch of grapes is worth, what, like three bucks? Last three days? Good bottle of wine? That's worth ten times that, a hundred times that, and it gets better and better with age. But in order for grapes to become wine, what has to happen? Shoot. Crush. To crush it. And he said to me, you need to stop protecting your grapes from me. Because I can make them something that will be beautiful. That will be beautiful and that will turn the situation around to save many lives. He's good. The last one. (laughs) He is good. He's a good God. He is a turning God. He is a winning God. Are any of you old enough to remember when everybody didn't get a trophy? Isn't that funny? Do you remember when there were actual winners and losers? When somebody got picked last? I'd live to tell the tale. It's okay. (laughs) I was a short kid always. I was scrappy, but I was short. Nobody wanted me on the team. I think it made me strong. That's not what we're talking about, though. He was a winning God. He's a winning God, and he unapologetically wins. We are forever in our society trying to make the playing field level. He is never trying to do that. He is always a winning God. I have researched every battle in the Bible. I took four years. I researched every one. I researched it in the Hebrew. I researched it through secular scholars so I could see what history said about those those battles. And I am telling you, every time God showed up on the battlefield, he annihilates the enemy. He doesn't just squeak one out. He wins. Not in overtime. Not sudden death. Well, it is sudden death boom, they're dead. He wins. He is not, he doesn't worry about making, I mean, I love in Colossians how Eugene Peterson translate this scripture in the message. I think in the King James it says, on the cross Jesus made an open show of his enemies, and Eugene Peterson says he marched his enemies naked through the streets. He wins, and he will win in our lives. Sometimes, though, we have to see what a win looks like from eternity's perspective instead of from our little kind of here and now. We have to look at the eternal perspective of a win. That's what I've had to do in our life because nobody enjoys looking at ALS. No one thinks that looks like a happy idea. And honestly, I am in the women's speaking circuit. There is no crowd in this world who wants to look more successful than us. I mean, we want to look like our laundry's done, like our Pinterest boards are reality. We want to look like we've got it together, like our kids' socks match. That is not my life. I know I don't have a life that people would envy. But I am telling you, he's winning. He's winning for us. He's winning because we're more filled with purpose than we have ever been before. We're winning because our kids 
are more in love with Jesus and more confident of his care than ever before. I had a moment, <clears throat> I think because my boy isn't in here right now, um, right a couple of months after Steve's diagnosis, Josiah found a coupon book that we had made him for Christmas one year because we're too cheap to actually buy Christmas presents. No, we bought Christmas presents too, but we made a coupon book for his stocking. And it had things like, you know, go to a movie with mom. And so he's so excited because we weren't smart enough to put an expiration date on the coupon books. That's my little tip for you. Always include an expiration date. So he is coming out, and he's like, found this coupon, and he's reading these coupons, and look at this, and I can go to a movie, and this one is for having a friend over, and he gets to one, and he says, oh, play basketball with Dad. And he rips it up, and he says, you know what? It's okay. It's all right. I'll just, it's, that's, I'll just throw that away, just trying so hard <clears throat> to make it okay. And I was there with my oldest daughter and her husband, and we're all just thinking, what do I do? What do we do? What do we do? Do I say... I'll play with you. That's a good prize. <laughs> well, um, and we all just stayed silent, and I feel like it was the Holy Spirit. Because what we knew for sure was that God is enough for Josiah Stern. He's enough. And I stand by him this morning, and I don't just see him worship. I feel him worship. He knows his God. He knows his God as a father in ways that I do not. Something is happening in this kid's life because God is winning. That's why. Our kids are more in love with Jesus than they have ever been and more compassionate than they ever were before. We are winning because we are carefully counting and spending the minutes on the clock and the money in the bank and the energy in our muscles on his kingdom. We are really intentional with our words, our time, our love, our hope, our humility, our joy, our gratitude. We are certainly not perfect, but I will tell you this. We have clean accounts. We, <clears throat> after Steve's diagnosis, sat down and made a list of everyone we felt we needed to have a conversation with. Because I'm telling you, in a lot of years of ministry in a small town, you're going to make some people mad. And some people are going to make you mad. I mean, the church is real good at that. So is the PTA, so let's not get all judgmental about the church. The church hurts people, so does the Elks Lodge, you know, we're, we're all, people hurt people. But we had some people. I mean, the way we made the list, honestly, is who do you not want to run into at Safeway? That's how we made the list. And then we started meeting with them, and we said we just want to make sure. When it all boils down, it's all about relationship, and we want to make sure things are clean between us. And I can tell you, there is nobody, there is nobody that I don't, that I feel like we have unresolved stuff with. Probably, people probably feel that with me, but I don't know about it, so I don't care. They can make an appointment. <laughs> but I'm just telling you, we've been intentional about those things, and I wish we would have done it 10 years earlier. I wish we would have cleaned things up. We're winning because our accounts are clear with each other. God has done miraculous things in our marriage because we didn't have a lot of time to get things fixed. I'm winning because I'm learning through necessity to draw water from the wells of salvation. Isaiah 12 says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy. And you know, it's not true 
that Jesus is our only source of joy. That is a noble, Christian-y, bumper sticker thing to say, but it isn't actually biblically supported. The Bible tells us you can find joy in a good family, in a good marriage, in a good meal. Who knew? So awesome. Food truck Sunday. Bring it. Um, It says you can find joy in your children. You can find joy in a good day's work. There are a lot of wells that have joy. But the thing is that the Bible does also tell us that at some point you're going to take your bucket to the marriage well and hear it thunk on the bottom. At some point, all those other wells may run dry, probably will run dry. Sometimes you take your bucket to the bank well and you're like, oh, we're not very much there. But the well of salvation is the will well. It will. You will draw water with joy from salvation. You will. And so, true confession, I have always had a secret well. A secret well that I draw from when times are hard or when people are mad at me or people don't like women speaking in church or not that that's a little argument. (laughs) It's a valid argument. Um, But I've always had this secret well, and it's been this. The one thing I know is one thing. Steve Stern will never leave me. He will always be on my side. He will always encourage me. He is the most encouraging man. I was smart to marry him. I was my tricked him. <laughs> and I was smart to do it. <clears throat> and so all of a sudden when I saw my future rewritten in front of my eyes, and I started to imagine what do I do when people don't like women speaking in church and I don't have anyone on my team. And I'm learning to draw water from the wells of salvation. And sometimes it takes time. Sometimes it doesn't happen right away. I don't want to pretend with you that this is easy. But I'm going to tell you, it has always worked. Otherwise, I would not be standing here. It is always, he always shows up. He doesn't always show up the minute I think I need him. But he always shows up, and he always brings blessing with him. He always brings a word I need. He always brings joy. Sometimes it's through my friends who send me emails. Sometimes it's through his presence just uh, supernaturally. Sometimes it's through a worship song. Sometimes it's just through whatever, but he just he shows up. He is the one well that never, never, never runs dry. And so when people say, you know what? I know that God is good and I'm saved and all those things, but I've just been waiting and waiting for the right job to come along and I can't figure out what he's up to. Or I don't know, you know, where is God and what what is he doing in my life? I just don't even know. And and I I always want to say to them, you know that whole salvation thing? That's the big one. Keep drawing from that. The fact that I have a home that will outlast this one. In America, we've been able to cobble together pretty perfect lives, pretty comfortable lives. But other countries get this. Other countries get this idea that sometimes you just got to dig deep and draw from the well of salvation. Sometimes you say, this life is the short one and all my hope is in heaven. That's sometimes how it goes. And I'm telling you, that's a win. When we get to that part where we truly own the only thing that can never be taken from us, that's a win. We're winning because of Genesis 50, 20. The saving of many lives. We're able to be positioned in places we've never gone. We're able to talk to people who have no hope and they have very little time to find it. We would never, never, never have the credibility to stand 
in front of the ALS community and tell them Jesus is their only hope if he weren't our only hope in the same situation. It'd be like trying to save an orphan in Africa from your living room in America. A little girl on the street in Africa, Jesus, Jesus is your only hope. Look what he's done for us. Look at our awesome two-story house. you got to go there. The saving of many lives. We had to come to the understanding right away with this thing that he was after more than just the saving of Steve Stern. That there was a moment in Steve and I's life, before we even got married, we said, we are lashed to the altar of your purpose. Use us up. We're going to leave it all on the field. We're going to leave it all in lives. We're going to invest the hope of your kingdom in, in every person we can find, as fast as we can find it. And sometimes we've done that, and sometimes we haven't. But right now, he's winning. Because we see people finding hope who wouldn't have had it otherwise. About 20 people on my ALS list who are real souls, real honest-to-goodness people need Jesus. And we wouldn't have known about them otherwise. And I don't know if we would have known really, truly. I don't know if we would have cared. Jesus is winning. He's a winning God. He will win it in your life. I don't know what the win will look like, but I am telling you, he will never lose. There were times where the Israelites went out without him, and they got summarily defeated. But when we invite him into battle, and when we walk as he asks us to walk, he will win. Always. Always.